recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 27th, 2012. Tonight will be the fourth and final installment of our series on Lewis McFadden, the patriotic congressman who was one of the most prominent voices to ever stand against the Federal Reserve System and, and, and expose it as the scam in which it is. I have Sword Brethren here with me tonight again for this presentation, and oh, I we're wrapping up our presentation of Lewis McFadden. No? I think so. This will probably be the final one, and we might have to do one more to cover the odd manner of his death. Well, well, I think we'll, we might get to that tonight. I, I don't know how much can really be said, unless you have some material that I can't find anywhere. Mm-hmm. But we might cover it in more detail in a series along with, say, the death of other patriots, George Patton, Huey Long, um, George Lincoln Rockwell, a, a number of people who have died under very suspicious conditions or outright murder. Well, well, there were a few, and I, I, I had planned on touching on that a little bit at the end of this program tonight. In, in, um, the, in the first two installments of this series, we had presented a long speech which Lewis McFadden gave before Congress in 1932, where he explained how the Federal Reserve System is basically an, a scam foisted upon the unsuspecting American people. We presented that speech here in the first two installments of the series. It, it's clear that Lewis McFadden had the authority to give such a speech, being by profession a banker himself and being the chairman of the House Banking Committee for for quite some time. The the topic of the Federal Reserve was basically the core theme of McFadden's long tenure in Washington. He was a constant critic of the Federal Reserve. We ended the last program, the third installment of the series, by reading off the list of charges by which Lewis McFadden sought to impeach the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, the Controller of the Currency, and the Secretary of the United States Treasury for treason and other high crimes. Nothing that the, the charges were formally filed, they were referred to the House Judiciary Committee, and nothing ever became of them. Now, now remember that this was a sitting congressman, 12 years, and he must have been prepared to prove his case at the time when he made such formal charges, that there should be no doubt. They weren't interested in pursuing the charges, though, because you can't get justice from the Judiciary Committee. Well, well they weren't interested in pursuing the charges at all. The charges have never been pursued. And, and I wonder, though, if he had charged some private individuals with hoarding gold and refusing to turn in their gold, I'm sure the Judiciary Committee would have vigorously pursued that if he said, you know, Joe Smith down the road there on a farm has 10,000 pounds of gold in his basement. They probably would have pursued that, wouldn't they? Well, well right. It, it's um, yeah, yeah, the gold would have been confiscated immediately, and Joe Schmo would have been executed as a traitor, I'm sure, after the Gold Reserve Act, And anyway, or, or after Roosevelt's Executive Order 6102, which preceded the Gold Reserve Act, well, which is an unlawful executive order because executive orders were originally intended to be orders of the, of, of the chief executive to the members of the executive branch of government, 
and, and um, not to not, not to private citizens because they do not they, they do not have the weight of law that they constitutionally are not they are not laws. So we're not obligated as individual citizens to obey an executive order because executive orders apply to the executive branch of government. So the president writes an executive order to the Secretary of the Interior, the Secretary of Defense, instructing him in how to conduct himself in accordance with the law or the wishes of the administration. Well, well right. It's the executive orders reflect the wishes of the administration and how the law is to be enforced or, or, or how government agencies are to um, act in, in accordance with the law, right? But today they're used as basically a form so the, the president can just rule by decree or edict. He just signs his name on the bottom of some piece of paper, and now everyone has to bow to him. Well, well, that was never the intent, and, and the first president that did that should have been hung at dawn. And, and that would have been, I'm not sure, it may have been Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I believe it probably would have been Abraham Lincoln. Uh, well, you issued a decree in the form of an executive order? Well, when he ordered Congress to reconvene, well, when Congress adjourned um, without day. Hmm. Okay, I don't know if that was an official executive order or not, but he had no right to do it, period. The, um, the, the, the fourth installment of the series, we are going to present a series of quotes from the congressional record which were made by Lewis McFadden, and we will see that he began, if, if, you know, this is the way I observe what I've read of his career. He, he began by exposing the Federal Reserve for the scam that it was, and as his charges and assertions seemed to, um, to fall upon deaf ears, that, that nothing was done about them, he, he actually became more and more willing to name the criminals behind the Federal Reserve and, and, and expose their true nature, so he became more and more critical of international Jewry. And, and until the time when his life was taken from him. And, and it seems to me that he certainly was assassinated. It's the, the, the authoritative... Data on his, concerning his death can't be found. I, I mean, I can't find it on, on the internet. It might be out there in books somewhere. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It would take a long time to research that. That the um, I, I don't find anything definitive or authoritative concerning his death. I, I don't find references to police reports. I don't find references to newspaper articles at, at, until his actual death, and then they say nothing about the possibility that he was poisoned or, or murdered. So, so it, right, and I would think a sitting congressman, or actually he, he wasn't sitting at the time, he had just recently lost, but somebody who was a industrial elite or an elite banker in the banking industry and spent 20-plus years in banking and then 10-plus years in Congress who takes ill at a government banquet and then winds up dead in the hospital, shouldn't they have conducted an autopsy? They're claiming on Wiki that he died of coronary thrombosis. Well, who made that diagnosis? It doesn't even say what doctor made the, term, the determination or the cause of death. Well, well he did die in a hospital. So, yes. Oh, a a full sure. autopsy would have seemed called for, right? And since he was already in a hospital, it wasn't as though he was in the middle of nowhere in the Yukon. They could have easily done an autopsy. 
Well, well, that's right, but I don't, I don't, I'm not fully aware of the procedures that were in force in 1936, right? Right, and I just think that even if we don't have a smoking gun, okay, here's who killed him, and here's how they put the poison in his tea or his food or whatever, we can look at the overall situation and ask ourselves who benefits from his death. He just drops dead at 60. And this is coming after two earlier attempts on his life, one where someone opened fire on him with a pistol and missed with both shots before being restrained, and a second one where he had a, a major attack from some sort of poison which wasn't identified, and he was hospitalized for a, a number of days at least. So it looks like this third attempt was just the third and final one, and it happened to succeed. And if they hadn't got him that time, there would have been a fourth attempt and maybe a fifth attempt. And we have to ask ourselves, who benefits from his death? I don't think it was just a, a random assassin who right. had a, a dispute with him. Oh, you know, five years ago, your cow pooped on my yard, so I'm going to poison you now. It, it was somebody who was very well-connected or somebody working for some well-connected individuals. Well, well, I have an interesting quote from a Columbia, a, a, a um, one-time, I believe, Columbia University professor. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry, a professor at the City University of New York. And um, it, it's pretty interesting, and we'll get to that when we get to that point in, in this presentation, which is um, about 90 minutes from now, right? All right. These, the, these quotations that we're about to offer from the congressional record on various dates, the first one is January 8th, 1934, and it's the words of Congressman Lewis McFadden, the Congress of the United States must immediately throw the searchlight of investigation into this dark corner, meaning the Federal Reserve, or we are going to be swamped with political influences that are manufactured in foreign countries where they already were. And that will lead us to the surrender of our heritage of living, just as has been done on former occasions, just as we did, for example, when we entered into the Jay Treaty with England which was ratified on June 24, 1795, whereby we needlessly surrendered our right to the freedom of the seas. We fought the War of 1812 to regain this right, but the same political influences prevented even a discussion of this subject at the treaty which terminated that war. President Wilson vowed to regain the freedom of the seas at the Treaty of Versailles, but did we regain it? Is the Jay Treaty still in force? I stand here and say to you that I have studied these records, and not only did we adopt this monetary policy, meaning the Federal Reserve Act, without debate, not only did we adopt it without consideration, but we adopted it without even the knowledge of what we were doing. It was a piece of legislative trickery. It was a piece of work in the committee that was silent and secretive, sort of like the Patriot Act and and a a thousand other acts of Congress. Even members of the committee did not know what was being done according to their own declarations. The president and members of the House did not know they were acting on such a measure. But, as I have said before, the shadow of the hand of England rests over this enactment. Really the shadow of the House of Rothschild. That was the congressional record, January 8th, 1934. Again, on January 8th, 1934, an exchange between um, Congressman Lewis McFadden 
and a congressman Feisinger, F-I-E-S-I-N-G-E-R. And Congressman Feisinger says, you will recall. I just wanted to say that this appears to be William Feisinger, a Democrat from Ohio, from the Cleveland area. When Cleveland was um, still Cleveland. Congressman Feisinger says, you will recall the gentleman spoke about Professor Sprague, who was in the Treasury Department as advisor to the Treasury after he came as an advisor for the Bank of England. He was also a monetary advisor to the Economic Conference in London. So this gentleman worked for the Bank of England, and then he became a member of the U.S. Treasury Department. Wouldn't you think that if you're a member of the Bank of England, you should be forever excluded from having any position in the United States fiscal or monetary policy in an official capacity? That, that's only if we were concerned that the people running our monetary policy were concerned for the, for the United States, right? <laughs> Congressman Feisinger goes on to say, I was just going to remark that very thing, that the power to coin and fix the value of money is solely within the power of the Congress of the United States, and it cannot be delegated to anybody else in the world. So these men in the 1930s understood that the Congress had ceded, had, had relinquished it, its, um, its sovereign power to create money to a private bank. They understood that. They understood that was also a traitorous act. McFadden says, will the gentleman, meaning Feisinger, will the gentleman yield further? And Feisinger said, says I do. So McFadden continues with his questioning and asks, what does the gentleman say in regard to the delegation of that power to the Federal Reserve System? And Congressman Feisinger replies, I say it is illegal. I say it is unconstitutional. As far as it affects the value of basic money, power to control credits may be in a different class. In other words, the, the, the Congress should not should probably not regulate credit. However, it should regulate the value of money as the Constitution and, and coin the money as the Constitution commands it to. Congressman McFadden asks, the gentleman recognizes that that was done, does he not? And Feisinger replies, well, I think I recognize that fact, but it may be that Congress intended to delegate banking and credit control and not the control of the basic money values. McFadden goes on to ask, the Federal Reserve System has the power to issue Federal Reserve notes which circulate as money. And Feisinger says, it has. Of course, they are promises to pay. They are credits or IOUs of the bank. And McFadden says, and that power was delegated by Congress in the Federal Reserve Act. And Feisinger says, yes, sir, with the intent to regulate the volume of credit. And McFadden states, and is being pursued by them, which gives the Federal Reserve System control over the money and credit in the United States. And the Congressman Mott poses this question. What does the gentleman say about the delegation by Congress to the president to fix the value of money under the Farm Bill. And Feisinger answers, I think it was illegal, and the president did not want it. It was forced upon him. He never asked to have the amendment attached 
to the farm bill. It was forced upon him, and he is exercising the power because he was forced to exercise it, a power that he never wanted, and I say it is all illegal and unconstitutional. That, that's interesting, and, and um, I think that's the Farm Bill of 1933. I might be wrong. That might be the Agricultural Adjustment Act. I don't know what uh, – I'm not sure exactly what Farm Bill they're referring to, but it should be, it, it should be um, looked into. I should look into it more deeply. Could that be the um, Farm Relief Bill? Was there a Farm Relief – oh, the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, and then there was the Fraser-Lemke Farm Bankruptcy Act of 1934. But this speech is – when did you say this was being read in the congressional record? 1934. This is January 1934. So it's highly doubtful they'd be referring to the 34 one yet because that probably wasn't even in the Congress yet, right? Right. Well, well, they must be referring to the Agricultural Adjustment Act. I'm not sure if they're going to tell us who forced it on Roosevelt or, or how it could have been forced on Roosevelt. If the gentleman, and, and this is McFadden's reply to Feisinger's remarks, if the gentleman has been familiar with the activities of Dr. Sprague over the history of the Federal Reserve System, he, knows, he well knows that Dr. Sprague has been in all of the conferences. Now, this is a man who represents the Bank of England, right? Dr. Sprague has been in all of the conferences practically between the Bank of England, officers of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, and other central banks, which have had for their purpose the dealing with national and international price levels. That was one of the functions that he was exercising as expert advisor of the Bank of England. And Congressman Feisinger replies, now I understand that Dr. Sprague at the London conference was willing to peg the dollar to the British pound at $3.50. And if he had done that, the price levels in America would have been in control of the Bank of England. And it would have been so low that it would have wrecked our national economy. With that, Congressman Lamneck states, or asks, I should say, will the gentleman please insert at this point what Dr. Sprague said about who should control the price level? And Feisinger replies, I may say I did not expect to answer that question, but Dr. Sprague, in conference he had, stated he believed that the value of gold should be controlled by the British because they were more confident from banking experience to do so. And the point of this is simply to show that it was the Bank of England which was controlling the Federal Reserve for the, for the first 20 years of its existence, and, and of course, unto this day. From the Congressional Record for January 20th, 1934, Congressman McFadden states, I am quoting from the President's message to Congress on this very measure. I quote, and, and this measure that's, that, that's in question is, I believe the Gold Act, the, the, um, the Gold Reserve Act, which became law January 30th, 1934, 10 days later, that the title of all gold be in the government, that this is McFadden quoting Roosevelt's message. This is Roosevelt's words. The total stock will serve as a permanent and fixed metallic reserve which will change in amount only as far as necessary for the settlement of international balances or as may be required by future agreement among nations of the world for a redistribution of the world stock of monetary gold. And McFadden responds 
to Roosevelt's remarks, which he quoted by saying, I say again, what, I've, what I have repeatedly said, that there is a definite plan for the redistribution of the gold of this country and of the world's gold. That now McFadden, if we remember what he said about Kemmerer, the, the, the economics professor, Kemmerer had actually stated that the, um, the, the, the institution of the Federal Reserve would cause a flow of gold out of the United States to the banks of Europe, right? McFadden continues, the plan has been known ever since the establishment of the Bank of International Settlements that through that medium or one similar to it, eventually the redistribution of gold would take place. From the congressional record of January 30th, 1934, which is the day that the Gold Reserve Act became law. Bill, these people have just explained, these congressmen have just explained that they're documenting the ownership of the Federal Reserve at the time by the Bank of England. Well, well, basically, that's what it boils down to. There's an interesting website here. It's, it's almost a joke, but it's obviously not. It's federalreserve.gov under their FAQs. Who owns the Federal Reserve? Question mark. And they answer, the Federal Reserve system fulfills its public mission as an independent entity within government. It is not owned, owned in quotes, by anyone and is not a private profit-making institution. As the nation's central bank, the Federal Reserve derives its authority from the Congress of the United States. It is considered an independent central bank because its monetary policy decisions do not have to be approved by the president or anyone else in the executive or legislative branches of government. It does not receive funding appropriated by the Congress, and the terms of the members of the Board of Governors span multiple presidential and congressional terms. However, the Federal Reserve is subject to oversight by the Congress, which often reviews the Federal Reserve's activities and can alter its responsibilities by statute. Therefore, the Federal Reserve can more accurately be described as independent within the government rather than independent of government. So when McFadden indicts them and brings charges against them and recommends charges to the Judiciary Committee, what sort of oversight is there? You know, if, if the Federal Reserve says that they're subject to oversight, oversight by who? Well, well, that's the, the, those statements on our website are pretty blaze, brazen because they're very misleading, right? That's the smoke and mirrors of the Federal Reserve System. That that the president appoints the governors, but the banks are actually owned by the Federal Reserve banks are actually owned by the member banks. Right. I'm looking at a map right here, current as of 1976. It, its primary owner was Nathan Meyer Rothschild of London Bank of England along with the um, Lazard brothers, J.P. Morgan, Warburg, Kuhn Loeb, Lehman Brothers, Lehman Stern. It, it just seems that it, it's basically run by a clique of international Jewish bankers, some of whom are based out of this country, some are based in Paris, and some are based in London. But it, it primarily answers to its shareholders. It, it doesn't answer to the American Congress. If they did answer to the American Congress, then they probably would have had to answer the charges from McFadden. And even to an extent, they might have to answer the request for an audit from Ron Paul, assuming it's actually a serious request. And I have to wonder, has he ever introduced a bill to that effect, or is it just rhetoric on his part? Audit the Fed, audit the Fed, audit the Fed. Is it just a, a platitude, a soundbite, or has he actually introduced meaningful legislation to that effect? 
Well, well for, me, for, for a long time, it was a soundbite. I think he has introduced some legislation, but I think it's just just um, token legislation. I don't think it's anything serious. Uh, I'm not really up on current politics. So we can certainly assume, though, that he um, will never introduce criminal charges against the Board of Governors, as McFadden did, and then read them into the record. He's issued. I know he's he's had legis he's introduced legislation that had to do with the Federal Reserve. How far it goes, I'm really not sure. Yet, you know, I would have to look at it, and I'm not up on on current politics from from the last election cycle. I'm just not. It, it doesn't excite me any longer. Mark Downey says that Ron Paul's audit the Fed legislation is now in the Senate, and, and that's news to me. But but I'm sure it's just elected. I'm sure it's – I don't care about the coming election cycle, and, and I'm sure it's basically just legislation that, that was created so that he could support his own claims and his candidacy, right? That That's what I would think. He should have been – he should have been – Introducing that legislation over the last 24 years, and, and he probably right. hasn't been, right? And he wrote a book in 2009 called End the Fed. So he's kind of a Johnny-come-lately to the anti-Federal Reserve movement, isn't he? Because I think Eustace Mullins beat him by 30 years. Right. Well, well a lot of people did. Okay, from the Congressional Record of January 30th, 1934, which is the day that the Gold Reserve Act became law, and let let me run that down. The Gold Reserve Act. I'm going to read a paragraph from um, thepurplenews.com because I thought it was a good summary. The U.S. established the price of gold initially at $19.75 per troy ounce, and, and that's under the, um, the that that was in the first sessions of Congress in the 1790s. In 1834, the price was raised to $20.67. The U.S. stayed true to the founding principles of our Constitution until Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Presidential Executive Order 6102 on April 5, 1933, confiscating, and, and this is not too constitutional here at all, confiscating all gold held by U.S. citizens for other than industrial, professional, or artistic uses. FDR called in all U.S. held gold at a value of $20.67, the 1834 price, right? The Gold Reserve Act was passed by Congress on January 20th, 1934, establishing the official price of gold at $35 an ounce, a 40% devaluation of the U.S. dollar. These two actions were the first two major events in a long-term destruction of the value of the U.S. dollar and demonstrated that the U.S. government will confiscate the wealth of its citizens to achieve its political objectives. While most U.S. citizens were taught that FDR was a heroic figure and a great president, that's the power of the Jewish media, right? In combating the effects of the Great Depression in World War II, the reality is that he was responsible for a number of very destructive actions, including the confiscation of gold and the devaluation of the dollar. So, so that's basically the Gold Reserve Act, in a nutshell. Well, I found a 
note, basically, that they were tacking up all across the country. It says, Postmaster, please post in a conspicuous place. Signed, James A. Farley, Postmaster General. Under executive order of the President, issued April 5, 1933, all persons are required to deliver on or before May 1, 1933, all gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates now owned by them to a Federal Reserve Bank, branch, or agency, or to any member bank of the Federal Reserve System. Executive order forbidding the hoarding of gold coins, gold bullion, and gold certificates, and then it goes on for about six or seven paragraphs with subsections and text too small for me to read. But it says here, signed Franklin D. Roosevelt, White House, April 5, 1933. For further information, consult your local bank. Gold certificates may be identified by the words gold certificate appearing thereon. The serial number and the treasury seal on the face of a gold certificate are printed in yellow. Be careful not to confuse gold certificates with other issues which are redeemable in gold but which are not gold certificates. Criminal penalties for violation of executive order, $10,000 fine or 10 years imprisonment, or both as provided in Section 9 of this order. Signed by U.S. Secretary of Treasury, and I can't make out his signature. Shouldn't this have been taken as a declaration of war on the American people? Well, well yes, it could, because it, it, it's a sure sign of tyranny, right? But tyranny, all, t- tyranny always prevails when the general mood is panic. And evidently, the, the onset of the depression and the Jewish-controlled media were able to—I uh, don't know—keep the people in a state of panic. I, I don't know. It, it's incredible that that they weren't marching on Washington with pitchfork, pitchforks in skies. I, I say that a lot, but but it's true. I don't know how people could let the president get could let any sitting president get away with that. What well, when there's been no actual law passed? He is handing down. Um, royal dictates, and and this isn't a monarchy, right? Right. I'm sure if they tried this in 1810, there would have been another revolution. Absolutely. At least there should have been another revolution. There should have been another revolution right here in, in 1933, and there wasn't. If, if the Bank of America, the Bank of the United States, tried this, Andrew Jackson wouldn't have had to kill the bank because the people would have done it for him. So basically, American citizens are being told to gather up your gold and hand it over to the bankers. Right. Okay, Lewis McFadden, January 30th, 1934. The gentleman, of course, is aware of the fact that the Council of the Federation of Churches of Christ, which is the forerunner to the National Council of Churches, which we suffer today, is an offshoot of the Carnegie Foundation, which is operating in this country as a British propaganda organization tied up with all of the other subversive organizations which are trying to hold down proper preparedness in the United States. The, 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 um, the, the nation's institutions were already well infiltrated by the time Franklin Roosevelt became president that the assault on American culture was certainly many-faceted. From the Congressional Record of February 20th, 1934, Congressman McFadden, why should the United States be buying gold and paying $35 an ounce for it? Why should the United States be making Great Britain a present of $14.33 an ounce on the hundreds of millions of dollars of British gold that is being shipped to the United States through this process 
be favoring four London gold brokers. In, in other words, Congress gold was selling for for over a hundred years. Gold was selling at twenty dollars and sixty seven cents an ounce. And, and by the, the the Gold Reserve Act, the price of gold almost doubled. So they were selling gold to the United States because they could get a lot of American dollars for it. They were deflating the currency. Why should the United States set a price of $35 and pay Great Britain an increase of $14.33 on every ounce of gold? This is interesting when you consider that three-fourths of all the gold produced in the world is produced in the British Empire. Did we do this because Great Britain demanded it? Is it possible that this $14.33 profit to Great Britain on every ounce of gold shipped into the United States is for settlement of a debt that the United States owes to Great Britain? From the Congressional Record on March 3rd, 1934, a Congressman Wiedemann. So the paramount issue of today is, shall the government of the United States be run for the benefit of the international bankers, or shall the citizens of the United States be given the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Shall we replace the Statue of Liberty with the golden statue erected to the God of Greed? Shall we forget that the only time our Savior used force was when he drove the money changers from the temple? Let us reestablish the principle that we all believe in, that all men are entitled to a right to work, to their own homes, to reap a just reward for their labors, and to enjoy nature's sunshine as God intended. We owe it to our children that we shall not depart and leave them in a condition of bondage and slavery to organized greed and gold. The next statement is from a Congressman Lemke. This nation is bankrupt. Every state in this union is bankrupt. The people of the United States as a whole are bankrupt. The public and private debts of this nation, which are evidenced by bonds, mortgages, notes, or other written instruments, amount to $250 billion. And it is estimated that there is about $50 billion of which there is no record making in all about $300 billion of public and private debts. The total physical cash value of all the property in the United States is now estimated at about $70 billion, which is about a quarter of the debt, right? That is more than it would bring if sold at public auction. In this, we do not include debts or the evidence of debts, such as bonds, mortgages, and so forth. These are not physical property, they will have to be paid out of the physical property. How are we going to pay $300 billion worth only $70 billion? From the Congressional Record of March 13, 1934. Congressman McFadden, in the view of what the gentleman has just said, recall that Theodore Roosevelt, in the year that he passed on, made a statement to the effect that Felix Frankfurter is the most dangerous man in the United States to our form of government. It would be interesting to obtain that entire quote, right? March 15, 1934, Congressional Record, Congressman McFadden. It is right in line with the plan which is now being worked out in England. I want to point out to the House that there is a concerted movement, not only in England, but in the United States. 
In the United States, this movement is in charge of certain men now engaged in writing legislation in the Department of Agriculture. I refer to a Mr. Tudwell, Mr. Mordecai Ezekiel, and Mr. Frank, two out of three of them are Jews, and their immediate associates, some of whom are in other departments and some of whom are outside. And I may even go so far as to say that they are aided and abetted in this manner, apparently by the Secretary of Agriculture. Their action, and, and when we talked about Andrew Hiss, what we saw that, that there were a, a, um, a large number of com- communists, known communists, in the, the agriculture department at this time, right? Their action in this matter is also assisted and aided through the agency of the Foreign Policy Association of the United States, which is directly connected with the Fabian Society, or a branch of it in England, which at the present time is attempting to take over the control of agriculture and its operation in England, as well as the industries therein located. I call your special attention to the recent article, America Must Choose, by Secretary of Agriculture Wallace a syndicated article put out under the auspices of the Foreign Policy Association of New York and copyrighted by them. This article is quite in keeping with the plan of the British offspring of the Fabian group, that meaning the, um, the, the Jews. The slow road to socialism. The Jews who, yes, the slow road to socialism espoused by um, George Bernard Shaw, and um, Israel Zangwill and, and a, a cast of other Jews. Was George Bernard Shaw a Jew, or was he just a useful idiot? I think he was a useful idiot. He, he was Irish. If he was a, a some kind of Murano Irishman, I don't know, but he was Irish. One of the stalwarts against the move in England is Stanley Baldwin. Mr. Baldwin issued a statement which was printed in the United States recently. It was a statement made over the radio, and if I have time... I will read it to you, these are McFadden's words, because he is standing today against the movement in England that I am speaking against now. And that movement is evidenced by this legislation and any other kind of legislation following, which have for their purpose the regimenting of all production in the United States, leading up to an absolute dictatorship. The quotation I I refer to from Mr. Baldwin is as follows. Our freedom did not drop down like manna from heaven. It has been fought for from the beginning of our history, and the blood of men has been shed to obtain it. It is the result of centuries of resistance to the power of the executive, and it has brought us equal justice, trial by jury, freedom of worship, and the freedom of religious and political opinion. Democracy is far the most difficult form of government because it requires for perfect functioning the participation of everybody. Democracy wants constant guarding, and for us to turn to a dictatorship would be an act of consummate cowardice, of surrender, of confession that our strength and courage alike had gone. It is quite true the wheels of our state coach may be creaking in heavy ground, but you are sure the wheels of the coach are not creaking in Moscow, Berlin, and Vienna, and even in the United States. He's probably making a reference to the encroachment of communism and tyranny. However, it it seems to me that um, uh, I'm surprised at how fooled they are by this term democracy in 1934. 
when this nation was never supposed to be a democracy, right? And a democracy is basically just mob rule or rule by the elite. Right. Well, it wasn't called a democracy until the Wilson administration, I believe. The democratic form of government was seen as being opposed to the United States Republic until the Wilson administration. So, so there, there, there was a huge... Um, uh, I, I can only blame the media impact at the time to, to change the minds of people concerning democracy in a short period of time, but we see it. It's, pretty, it's fairly evident. We, we should probably cover that topic at greater length one day. Mm-hmm. You mean how, how they've shifted people's understanding of our form of government from constitutional republic to mob rule democracy? Well, well absolutely. To continue in um, McFadden's quote of this Mr. Baldwin, the whole tendency of a, of a dictatorship is to squeeze out the competent and independent man and create a hierarchy accustomed to obeying. Chaos often results when the original dictator goes. The rise of communism or fascism both alike, both alike believe in force as a means of establishing their, dictator, their dictatorship would kill everything that had been grown by our people for the last 800 or 1,000 years. The plan in England to which I am referring to is the political economic plan drawn up by Israel Moses Seif, the director of a chain store enterprise in England called Marks and Spencer. This enterprise declared a dividend of 40% for 1933 and was enabled to do so by the fact that it has until now handled almost exclusively all imports from Soviet Russia, which has enabled this house to undersell competitors. The political economic plan is in operation in the British government by the means of a tariff advisory board. What does the Soviet Union export in 1933, aside from misery? I'm not sure what they were exporting in 1933. Or aside from, you know, communist subversives and Jews that are being sent to the West to undermine Western nations. Right. Uh, I mean, they had that. They they had forced labor industries. I'm not sure what they were what they were exporting at that time. The political economic plan is in operation in the British government by the means of a tariff advisory board. This organization has gathered all data and statistics obtained by governmental and private organization and administrative industrial trade, social, educational, agricultural, and other circles. Air Force statistics are in their hands, as well as those of the law and medical professions. This organization or group have had access to all the archives of the British government just as the brain trust, and he puts that in quotes, here in the United States have had access to archives of our government departments. Through the Tariff Advisory Board, which was created in February of 1933 and headed by Sir George May, the control of industry and trade is being firmly established in the British Empire. This Tariff Advisory Board works in direct connection with the Treasury, and together with it, devises the tariff policy. In this bill, the tariff bill which follows, it is proposed to set up just such a board under the direction of the president as the Tariff Advisory Board of England. The Tariff Board in England has been granted the powers of a law court and can exact under oath that all information concerning industry and trade be given it. 
iron and steel, and also cotton and industrials in England had been ordered by the Tariff Advisory Board to prepare and submit plans for the reorganization of their industries and warned that should they fail to do so, a plan for complete reconstruction would be imposed upon them. May I suggest to you the similarity of this plan with the NRA, which means the National Recovery Act, part of what Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, right? And also unconstitutional, if I'm not mistaken, the, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the National Recovery Act, Almost all of the key New Deal legislation was declared unconstitutional until he threatened to pack the court and they allowed some of it to stand. And also suggest to you that the Tariff Advisory Board in England has been granted default powers and can therefore impose its plan. Well, well it seems to me that this is the, the attempt to Sovietize Britain and the United States, right? The Tariff Board is composed, in addition to Sir George May, of Sir, Sir Sidney Chapman, Professor of Economics and Statistics, and Sir George Allen Powell of the British Food Board and Food Council. And it is a well-known fact that this particular political economic group has close connection with the Foreign Policy Association. In New York, I wish to quote from a letter from a correspondent of mine abroad as follows. It appears that this alleged brain trust is supposed to greatly influence the present United States policy. Neither you nor I are particularly interested in what takes place in England. But what should interest us both, it seems to me, is that, that there is a strong possibility that certain members of the brain trust around our president, and they were almost all Jews, right, are undoubtedly in touch with this British organization and possibly are working to introduce a similar plan in the United States. I understand the Brain Trust is largely composed of Professor Frankfurter, Professor Moley, Professor Tugwell, Adolf Burrell, William C. Bullitt, and the mysterious Mordecai Ezekiel. So William Bullitt appears again. Well, well, yes. He, he was part of Roosevelt's Brain Trust. Oh, and Adolf Burrell was a member of Columbia Law School. He was a faculty member. Wiki lists him, though, as an anti-communist, and he was made ambassador to Brazil in 1945 by Roosevelt, and he was a, it looks like he was a policy advisor. To continue to quote, I think there is no doubt that these men all belong to this particular organization, the Foreign Policy Association. With distinct Bolshevik tendencies... So it is quite possible that should this political economic plan be developed in the United States, if this alleged brain trust has a really seriously, a really serious influence over the judgment of our president, this plan may be attempted in our country. Need I point out to you, who have been observing the activities of the so-called brain trust in the writing and sending to the Congress of legislation, that this legislation has for its purpose the virtual setting up in the United States of a plan similar to that which is being worked out in England. I am assured by serious people who are in a position to know that this organization practically controls the British government. And it is in the opinion of those who do know that this highly organized and well-financed movement is intended to practically Sovietize the English-speaking race. 
I wish to quote again from my correspondent as follows. McFadden was on top of it, right? Some two months ago, when Israel Moses CF, the present head of this organization, was urged to show more activity by the members of his committee, he said, let us go slowly for a while and wait until we see how our plan carries in America. That was the congressional record for March 15, 1934. And Bill, Mordecai Ezekiel is listed as a Guggenheim Fellow, and Wiki declares him an American agrarian economist. What is an agrarian economist? I guess that would mean he's a Jewish farmer. Well, well, no, that really means that he's um, probably a, a denizen of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Well, when they say Jewish farmer, they don't mean a guy who's actually out in the field tilling the land and, and reaping the harvest and working with a scythe or a plow. They mean a Mordecai Ezekiel who's in Chicago on the Mercantile Exchange. I don't know. I don't know much about Mordecai Ezekiel, but it, he seems like a figure we should probably learn more about. From the congressional record, well, well anyway, the point is to show that that the um, the Roosevelt administration was planning on Sovietizing America, and McFadden was on top of that. April 9, 1934, congressional record. Congressman Patman, a Federal Reserve Bank has a great privilege it has the right to issue a blanket mortgage on all the property of all the people of this country. It is called a Federal Reserve note, and, and we all think they're money, right? For that privilege, Section 16 of the Act provides that when the government prints a Federal Reserve note and guarantees to pay that note and delivers it to a Federal Reserve bank, that Federal Reserve bank shall pay, it seems to be mandatory, the rate of interest that is set by the Federal Reserve Board. The law has never been put into effect. The Federal Reserve Board sets the zero rate. Instead of charging an interest rate, which the law says they shall charge, they set no rate at all. Therefore, for, for the use of this great government credit, these blanket mortgages that are issued against all the property of all the people of this nation and against the incomes of all the people of this nation, they do not pay one penny. Now, one penny of the stack of the Federal Reserve Banks is owned of the stock of the Federal Reserve Banks is owned by the government or the people, but it is owned by private banks exclusively. They do not pay one penny for the use of that great privilege to the people or to the government. In fact, they that they print the money, and they charge the people in the government, right? All right. Shall I read the next few records? Please. June 14, 1934, congressional record, McFadden speaking. I hope that is the case, but I may say to the gentleman that during the session of this economic conference in London, there is another meeting taking place in London. We were advised by reports from London last Sunday of the arrival of George L. Harrison governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and we were advised that accompanying him was Mr. Crane, the deputy governor, and James P. Warburg of the Kuhn Loeb Banking family of New York and Hamburg, Germany, and also Mr. O.M.W. Sprague, I believe that's Oliver Sprague, recently in the pay of Great Britain as chief economic and financial advisor of Mr. Norman, governor of the Bank of England, and now supposed to represent our treasury. 
These men landed in England and rushed to the Bank of England for private conference, taking their luggage with them before even going to their hotel. We know this conference has been taking place for the past three days behind closed doors in the Bank of England, with these gentlemen meeting with the heads of the Bank of England and the Bank for International Settlements of Basel, Switzerland, and the head of Bank, of the, the head of bank France, Mr. Moret. They're discussing war debts. They're discussing stabilization of exchanges in the Federal Reserve System, I may say, to the members of the House. The Federal Reserve System, headed by George L. Harrison, is our premier, who is dealing with debts behind the closed doors of the Bank of England. And the United States Treasury is there, represented by Oliver M.W. Sprague, who until the last 10 days was the representative of the Bank of England, and by Mr. James P. Warburg, who is the son of the principal author of the Federal Reserve Act. Many things are being settled behind the closed doors of the Bank of England by this group. No doubt this group were pleased to hear that yesterday the Congress passed amendments to the Federal Reserve Act and that the President signed the bill, which turns over the Federal Reserve turns over to the Federal Reserve System the complete total financial resources of money and credit in the United States. Apparently, the domination and control of the international banking group is being strengthened. Now, Bill, isn't the, uh, a centralized credit monopoly in the hands of some state entity or quasi-state entity, isn't that a key part of the Communist Manifesto? Yes. Right. They are being... Hmm. Absolutely. And he, he spells it out right here. We are being led by the international Jews operating through Great Britain and the Bank of England and it is the purpose of those who are directing and cooperating that debts be reduced to 10% or canceled entirely. Has Ron Paul ever used the phrase international Jews? No, not to my knowledge. So he, he doesn't actually tell people who's behind all of this banking scam. Absolutely not. Not to my knowledge. He never has. Then there is James P. Warburg, who was called in by the president and who has sat in on all of the conferences here in Washington, participated in by the foreign representatives recently. And he is the financial advisor at the, at the economic conference and at the conference in the Bank of England, to which I have referred. Mr. Warburg, you undoubtedly know, is the head of the International Jewish Financial Group, who were largely responsible for the loaning abroad of the vast billions of dollars by the people of the United States and which loans are now frozen. We must not overlook the fact, however, that J.P. Morgan and company were close seconds in these transactions. And in connection with this, I wish to point out that George L. Harrison, governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, is closely identified with the Morgan House in all of the undertakings internationally in which the Federal Reserve Banks participated. Congressional record, 614-1934. Well, well, it seems to me that these are probably the first references, explicit references to Jews by McFadden in the congressional record. I mean, I'm not 100% sure of that, but they're certainly the first ones that we found and, and, and that we've seen here in these documents. And today, of course, it won't... No congressman uses the word Jew unless he's talking about how we need to send them more money, how they're God's chosen people, how Jesus is one of them, and how Iran wants to kill all of them, and we need to stop Iran. Right. Prior to this, McFadden had only made mention of aliens and foreign-born people 
controlling our economy. And that was in reference to Paul Warburg, who, who, was, a, who was a Jew from a family of Jews in Germany who, who had come to um, control prominent, a prominent bank in Germany. And, and they, Paul Warburg from that family actually came to the United States to be, I believe, the first Federal Reserve chairman. Wasn't he the one that said that we will have a world government? The question is whether by force or by consent. I think that was his son, James, that may have said that. It was one of the Warburgs, though, correct? Yes, James Warburg was the son of Paul Warburg. And we'll we'll, we'll hear more about him later. Congressman McFadden speaking again on 14 June 1934. Whereas the lobbying activities of the said British ambassador, Sir Ronald Lindsay, carried on in the halls of the Capitol, at the British Embassy, in the houses of citizens of the United States, in the offices of predatory international bankers, on shipboard, on the trains, and elsewhere, have for their purpose the taking from the United States Treasury of assets, which it is, sworn, it is the sworn duty of this government to protect by every means within its power, not stopping short of war, if need be. And whereas the said Lindsay's lobbying activities likewise have for their purpose the defeat of measures enacted into law by the government of the United States to ensure the repayment of monies advanced to Great Britain on her written promise to repay them, and whereas the lobbying activities of Sir Ronald Lindsay likewise have for their object the overthrow of the government of the United States and its reorganization as a part of the British Empire. Well, hasn't Britain always resented and hated the fact that we broke away and we left their little clique? That we refused to be governed as just some occupied province or colony that we struck well, out? Well, that's true, or, but is it really the, the, the people of Britain that, that hated that, or, or is it the Jews of the city who have hated that? Well, I'd say the Jews hated losing the economic exploitation of America and the control over our policy, and the British people hated the prestige hit that they took from losing a war to a bunch of backwater peasants. Well, well the English monarchy and, and, and the Jews of the city have always been um, adversarial. And throughout the 19th century, they were adversarial to the interests of these United States, to our, to our original constitutional republic, right? That, that yeah. They agitated... The well, well, they agitated the war of northern aggression. That they agitated the, the the succession of the South. They wanted to control the cheap labor and exploit the natural resources of the South. So they they helped to agitate the succession, and, and that's why I'm torn. Uh, I personally am torn over the Civil War because I understand states' rights and, and the fact that the South had every right to succeed and, and that the individual southern states had the right to determine their, their own destinies. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I understand that the American Civil War was agitated by the Rothschilds and that it was the Rothschilds who wanted to split the country. Absolutely. So, so, so on, on hand, they had the right to do it that they had the right to succeed, of course, and to determine their own futures. But on the other hand, it's the Rothschilds that wanted to split the nation. 
So, 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 so it, it, it's hard to, to pick a side, right? It, it really is hard to choose a side. Because well, and, and the whole conflict was probably avoidable, and it just it cost us 600 to 700,000 white lives, some of the best people in the country. But, well, the bottom line is that our people are so, that's why we're sheep, right? We're so, we, we are so susceptible to propaganda. And, and it was Jewish merchants, and, and, and I can't quite prove this, but, but I have read a lot of things that infer it, and, and I would like to research it further one day. It was Jewish merchants who were behind most of the, the, the abolitionists and, and the agitation towards abolitionists, toward, towards abolition. It, it was Jewish merchants. It was um, the, the people, of, people from the French Masonic Lodges, as, as I pointed out last night with La Boulay, uh, he, he was a prominent abolitionist and, and um, agitated for the ending of slavery in, in, in the United States. So, so it's the, the Jews and the Masons were, were behind a lot of the abolitionist movement. So, so it's, it, it's um, there's a lot of treachery, Jewish treachery in this nation that goes back way before um, the Federal Reserve Act. I don't want to get into too much conspiracy here, but we, we pretty much agree that Dame Medici are a Jewish family, and Charles II and James II were both grandchildren of Marie de Medici. Medici. So it, it seems to me that in Western Europe, particularly France, England, Spain, Portugal, and Italy, there's a lot of de Medici influence. So I, I don't know if we can call the British royals anymore British, since if you go back far enough, you find de Medici's in their family tree back in the 15 and 1600s. That would thereby make them Jews, wouldn't it? Well, well, I don't know because the the, the um, I haven't studied the entire genealogy of the monarchy, and because that the monarchy has changed families many times, right? Mm. I mean, you, you have the Plantagenets, the Stuarts, the the, um, mm. the Tudors, William and Mary, Coburg, Saxe, Gotha. You know, you have different families in the monarchy. There, there, there's not a direct. There's not a direct line all the way back to James the first from from the current sitting queen right it it's not it's been overturned many times right all right to continue congressional record june fifteen nineteen thirty four McFadden speaking again at that time, a man named Jacob Schiff came to this country as the agent of certain foreign moneylenders. His mission was to get control of American railroads. This man was a Jew. He was the son of a rabbi. He was born in one of the Rothschild houses in Frankfurt, Germany. He was a small fellow with a pleasant face, and if I remember correctly, his eyes were blue. At an early age, he set out from Frankfurt to seek his fortune and went to Hamburg, Germany. At Hamburg, he entered the Warburg Banking Establishment. The Warburgs of Hamburg are bankers of long standing with branches in Amsterdam and Sweden. Sometime before Schiff's arrival, there was a, Jew, a firm of Jewish peddlers or merchants in Lafayette, Indiana, by the name of Kuhn and Loeb. I think they were there about 1850. Probably they made money out of the new settlers who passed through Indiana on their way to the Northwest. This firm of Jews had finally moved to New York and had set themselves up as private bankers and had grown rich. Jacob Schiff 
married Teresa Loeb and became the head of Kuhn Loeb and Company. Schiff made a great deal of money here for himself and for the Jewish moneylenders of London. He began to give orders to presidents almost as a matter of course. He appears to have been a man who would stop at nothing to gain his own ends. I do not blame him for being a Jew. I blame him for being a troublemaker. Oh, aren't the two, aren't they congruent? <laughs> it's hard to be one without being the other. Since most Jews are troublemakers and most troublemakers are Jews. Russia had a powerful enemy in this man, Jacob Schiff. The people of the United States were to believe that this enmity of his was caused by wrongs done to Russian Jews. about czarist Russia having a powerful enemy in this man, right? Right. Now, I wonder, we've already demonstrated that Jews were fairly well off in Tsarist Russia. They had the Pale Settlement. They had an autonomous oblast that they were allowed to live in in the east, and they could leave the country if they didn't like it. And What wasn't there for Jews to like in Tsarist Russia? They didn't really have to do any work. They weren't liable for conscription, were they? Well, they they didn't have the peasants um, strip naked homosexual and, and, and whores. I mean, what? So the Jew considers it persecution if he's not allowed to have control over all the state's assets and have everyone under his thumb. That's the pattern. So if a burglar is breaking in your house to steal all your stuff and you hit him over the head with a club, you're persecuting him in his mind because he has a right to your stuff. Well, well is, is, don't we see that today in, in our legal system and, and in our modern culture, that, that the criminals are often the victims? Right. Well, the criminals are persecuted. Jews are persecuted if they're not allowed to practice the Talmud, and and the Talmud tells them that they should own all the goyim and all the property of the goyim, right? And if we don't want to be owned, we're persecuting them. It's a holocaust. Right. Russia had a powerful enemy in this man, Jacob Schiff. The people of the United States were to believe that this enmity of his was caused by wrongs done to Russian Jews. I looked elsewhere for the motives which animated him. In the 1890s, Schiff was the agent in this country of Ernest Casal and other London moneylenders. These moneylenders were looking forward to a war between England and Russia and were making preparations for propaganda to design to support England in the United States. This country was then a debtor nation, paying a high, year, a high yearly tribute to Schiff and his principles. Schiff accordingly took it upon himself to create a prejudice in the United States against Russia. He did this by presenting the supposed wrongs of the Russian Jews to the American public. Unpleasant tales began to appear in print. School children, school children in this country were told that Jewish children were crippled for life by Russian soldiers wielding the knout. By unfair means, a wedge was driven between Russia and the United States. One of Schiff's schemes was a sort of wholesale importation of Russian Jews into the United States. He drew up divers and sundry regulations for the temporary transplantation of these Jewish emigrants. He would not, he said, have them enter this country through the port of New York because they might like New York too well to leave it for the outposts he had selected for them. He said it would be best to have them come in at New Orleans and to have them stay there two weeks so that they could pick up a few words of English and get a little money before setting off for what he called the American hinterland. I have documentation, and, and we're going to present it. We're, we're going to discuss it and present it here one night on this program that um, I believe it was 1910 
there were already 1.1 million Jews in New York, and and that was a quarter of the city's population. So New York has fundamentally been a Jewish city for several hundred years, probably. Well, well, it sure as hell was in 1910. There's no doubt. Disorders occurred and were exploited in the American press. Riots and bombings and assassinations for which somebody furnished money took place. The perpetrators of these outrages appeared to have been shielded by powerful financial interests. While this was going on in Russia, a shameless campaign of lying was conducted here, and large sums of money were spent to make the general American public believe that the Jews in Russia were a simple and guileless folk ground down by the Russians and needing the protection of the great benefactor of all the world, Uncle Sam. In other words, we were deceived. We were so deceived that we allowed them to come in here and to take the bread out of the mouths of our American citizens. I come now to the time when war was declared between Russia and Japan. This was brought about by a skillful use of Japan so that England would not have to fight Russia and India. And as you may know, the um, Russians were expanding in Central Asia at the time. They called it the Great Game, and they both had designs on Afghanistan. And, of course, the British Empire wasn't about to let the Russians move into Afghanistan because then that would threaten India and the jewel of their empire. So they had to do something to hurt Russia. It was cheaper and more convenient for England to have Japan fight Russia than do it herself. As was to be expected, Schiff and his London associates financed Japan. They drew immense quantities of money out of the United States for that purpose. The background for the loans they floated in this country had been skillfully prepared. The sob stuff, of which Schiff was a master, had sunk into the hearts of sympathetic Americans. The loans were a great success. Millions of American dollars were sent to Japan by Schiff and his London associates. England's stranglehold on India was made secure. Russia was prevented from entering the Khyber Pass and falling on India from the northwest. Japan at the same time was built up and became a great world power, and as such is now facing us in the Pacific. All this was accomplished by control of the organs of American publicity, releases to the effect that Russian Jews and Yankee Jews are being persecuted in Russia, and by the selling of Japanese war bonds to American citizens. This is amazing, selling Japanese war bonds to American citizens. Is there any um, constitutional basis for allowing a, a belligerent country in a war that we're not a party to to sell war bonds in our country? That, that just seems shocking. I, I imagine the founders would be aghast at that, wouldn't they? Well, well, buying the Japanese war bonds in this country would be a, a violation of neutrality and an act of war against Russia. Since we, we're, we're basically financing a belligerent in, a, in its war against Russia. It can't amount to an act of war against Russia, yes. There's no way you can say we're maintaining our neutrality while we're financing their war effort against you. Once you start buying war bonds, we're a party to the war. It's a a blatant act of war against Russia. While the Russo-Japanese War was in progress, President Theodore Roosevelt offered to act as peacemaker, and a conference between the representatives of the belligerents was arranged to take place at Portsmouth, New Hampshire. When the Portsmouth Conference took place, Jacob Schiff attended it and used such influence as he had with Theodore Roosevelt to win favors for Japan at the expense of Russia. 
Now, Jacob Schiff, correct me if I'm wrong at this time, is nobody in regards to official government position. He's just some banker Jew with a lot of money. So what's he doing at an international peace conference? Who invited him, or did he invite himself? It, it seems to be probably invited himself. <laughs> who, who was the president? Was it Theodore Roosevelt at the time? Yes. So what, um, Jacob Schiff just showed up, said, you all know who I am, or they announced him with blaring trumpets, and he just walked in, and Roosevelt saluted him, bowed before him, said, what is thy bidding, master? Now you know who owns Theodore Roosevelt, right? His main object, then, as always, was humiliation of Russians, whose only crime was that they were Russians and not Jews. He endeavored to humiliate the Russians, but Count Witt, the Russian plenipotentiary, did not allow him to succeed in this attempt. Schiff's power and the power of his organized propaganda were well understood by Count Witt. I might be butchering his name. How would you pronounce that? W-I-T-T-E? It, it probably witty. Uh, I'm witty, Count Okay. However, consequently, he was not surprised when President Roosevelt, who was often deceived, twice asked him to have Russia treat Russian Jews who had become naturalized in the United States and who would thereafter return to live in Russia with special consideration. That is, not as Jews, but as Americans. So he's basically demanding extraterritoriality for them, isn't he? Yes. Witte carried home a letter from Roosevelt embodying this plea. Mr. Speaker, the restrictions upon Jews in Russia at that time may or may not have been onerous. But onerous or not, before the Russians had time to change them, Schiff had the 80-year-old Treaty of Friendship and Goodwill between Russia and the United States denounced. Speaking of this matter, Count Witte says in his autobiography, the Russians lost the friendship of the American people. Mr. Speaker, I cannot believe that these people, the real Russians, ever lost the true friendship of the American people. They were done away with to suit the ambitions of those who intend to be the financial masters of the world, and some of us were deceived into thinking that in some mysterious way they themselves were the blame. The chasm that suddenly opened between ourselves and our old friends and well-wishers in Russia was a chasm created by Schiff, the vindictive, in his inhuman greed, and he created it in the name of the Jewish religion. Mr. Speaker, the people of the United States should not permit financial interests or any other special interests to dictate the foreign policy of the United States government. But in this connection, history is now repeating itself. You have heard, no doubt, of the so-called persecutions of Jews in Germany. Mr. Speaker, there is no real persecution of Jews in Germany. Hitler and the Warburgs and Mendelssohns and Rothschilds appear to be on the best of terms. There is no real persecution of the Jews in Germany, but there has been a pretended persecution of them because there were there are 200,000 unwanted communistic Jews in Germany largely Galician Jews who entered Germany after the world war and Germany is very anxious to get rid of those particular communistic Jews so at the time he's saying that two out of five Jews in Germany are communists well, well probably proactive communists uh, I would say that 99% of the Jews in Germany were probably communists. Not, not maybe it wasn't that high, to be honest, but, but, but most Jews in Germany seem to have had communist tendencies. There's no doubt. Just like most Jews in America seem to have Marxist or, or ultra-liberal tendencies. And, and that probably describes 90% of Jews in America. It seems that those tendencies go away, though, when they move to Israel, doesn't it? 
Well, well, basically in Israel, anything goes. I mean, when I say Israel, I mean modern day that that modern day occupation, Zionist occupation state in Palestine, and anything goes there. You, you don't have to be a liberal there because anything goes there. Well, I think so rampant. Uh, um, that there's a never-ending supply of blonde whores from from Eastern Europe. That it, it, anything goes there. You don't have to be a, a um, an, an agitating liberal. Well, I think someone explained it best that communism is the system that the Jews use to take your property, and since they own occupied Palestine, they don't need communism there because they already own it. All right. The Germans wish to preserve the purity of their own blonde racial stock. They are willing to keep rich Jews like Max Warburg and, the, and Franz Mendelssohn's, whose families have lived in Germany so long that they've acquired some German national characteristics. But the Germans are not willing to keep the Galician Jews the upstarts. So a great show was put on, largely by German Jews themselves, in the hope that Uncle Sam will prove himself to be as foolish as he was before and that he will allow those Galician and communistic Jews to come in here. That is why Ms. Perkin has been placed in charge of the Department of Labor. She is there to lower the immigration bars. It is thought that being a woman, she may disarm criticism. She is an old hand with the international Jewish bankers. If she were not, she would not be here in a Jewish-controlled administration. When the so-called anti-Semitic campaign designed for American consumption was launched in Germany, France was alarmed because she feared the Galician Jews might be dumped on French soil. French newspapers published articles concerning the menace, but now that France has been shown that the purpose of the anti-Semitic campaign is to dump 200,000 communistic Jews on the United States, she is worried no longer. Ah, she says, oh, Uncle Sam, he is to be the goat. Very good. Mr. Speaker, I regard it as a pity that there are Americans who love to fawn upon the money Jews and to flatter them. Some of these unfortunates are under obligations to Jewish money changers and dare not cross them. You have witnessed the unlawful seizure by Franklin D. Roosevelt of gold reserves and other values belonging to the people of the United States, the destruction of banks, the attempted whitewashing of the Federal Reserve Board and Federal Reserve Banks, the corruption of which he admitted in his campaign, Harooms, and you have, made, you have noticed that what was confiscated is not in the hands of the present constitutional government, but in the hands of the international bankers who are the nucleus of the new government. Roosevelt is seeking to establish here. Roosevelt's actions are not in accordance with the Constitution of the United States. They are in accordance with the plans of the Third International. Absolutely. That, that, that's a, uh, I mean, we, a, we demonstrated last year in a Trader Within series all of the communists who, who were actively operating in the Roosevelt administration, and Franklin Roosevelt was protecting them. Well, they were recruited explicitly for the purpose that they were communists. Isn't that why they were given their position? Absolutely. They were known communists. They were brought in because they were communists, and they were known to be reliable communists. And, and most of them were connected to Felix Frankfurter or Felix Frankfurter's associates. And Felix Frankfurter was the most prominent member of Franklin Roosevelt's so-called brain trust. Hmm. All right, to continue. At one time, Trotsky was a favorite with Jacob Schiff. During the war, Trotsky edited Novi Mir and conducted mass meetings in New York. When he left the United States to return to Russia, he is said upon good authority to have traveled on Schiff's money and under Schiff's protection. 
He was captured by the British at Halifax and immediately, on advice from a highly placed personage, set free. Shortly after his arrival in Russia, he was informed that he had credit in Sweden at the Swedish branch of the bank owned by Max Warburg of Hamburg. This credit helped to finance the seizure of the Russian Revolution by the international Jewish bankers. It assisted them in subverting it to their own ends. Now, now let, let me just say that this is some of the stuff that Eustace Mullins um, is credited for, for having researched and discovered, right? Well, well here it is right, right from a, a sitting congressman in the congressional record, right? Right, but even McFadden makes the mistake of saying that the Jews seized the Russian Revolution. It was Jewish from day one. Right, right, right. Well, well, well basically, he does understand that it was financed by New York Jews. It was financed by Jacob Schiff. All right. At the present time, the Soviet Union is in debt. From the date of Trotsky's return to Russia, the course of Russian history has indeed been greatly affected by the operations of international bankers. They have acted through German and English institutions and have kept Russia in bondage to themselves. Their relatives in Germany have drawn immense sums of money from the United States and have in turn financed their agents in Russia at a handsome profit. The Soviet government has been given United States Treasury funds by the Federal Reserve Banks acting through the Chase Bank and the Guarantee Trust Co. and other banks in New York City. England, no less than Germany, has drawn money from us through the Federal Reserve Banks and has relent it at high rates of interest to the Soviet government or has used it to finance her sales to Soviet Russia and her engineering works within Russian borders. Well, the Jews own the, the Union, there's no doubt. Right. The Denepirostri Dam... Oh, I'm sorry, were you saying something, Bill? Well, well the Jews own the Soviet Union, there was no doubt, and, and we discussed that last year at length, and, and here Louis McFadden is basically corroborating it all for us. All right. The Denepirostri Dam... Excuse me was built with funds unlawfully taken from the United States Treasury by the corrupt and dishonest Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve Banks. And it was probably physically built by people working under the gun of the NKVD, wouldn't you assume? Absolutely. Mr. Speaker, an immense amount of United States money has been used abroad in preparations for war and in acquisition and in the acquisition and the manufacture of war supplies. Germany is said to be a part owner of a large poison gas factory at Troitsk on Russian soil. China is almost completely Sovietized, and in the Asiatic interior, huge stocks of munitions are said to be stored awaiting the day when the warlords of the United States will ship United States troops to Asia. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it um, Owen Lattimore who said that the best thing the U.S. could do with China was to let the Soviets have it? Yep. And he was a, he was part of this Roosevelt clique. He Roosevelt was brought another communist agent. Yes, Mr. Speaker, the United States should look before it leaps into another war, especially a war in Asia. It should decide whether it is worthwhile to join hands with Russia and China in a war against Japan. For myself, I say and have said it often that the United States should remember George Washington's advice. It should mind its own business and stay home. It should not permit the Jewish international bankers to drive it into another war so that they and their Gentile fronts and sycophants, by way of Louis McHenry Howe, the graft master, may reap rich profits on everything an army needs from toilet kits to airplanes, submarines, tanks, gas masks, poison gas, ammunition, bayonets, guns, and other paraphernalia and instruments of destruction. Would you like to um, finish it up? 
Attacks on McFadden's life reported, and, and this is going to be brief, that there, there isn't a lot of definitive or authoritative, authoritative information on the Internet. I have a few things I'd like to cite, though, when we um, finish with this short section. Commenting on former Congressman Lewis McFadden's heart failure, sudden death on October 3rd, 1936, after a dose of intestinal flu, Pelley's Weekly of October 14th said, and some of the people that have picked up this same quote from the same source have emended it by telling us that, and, and, and it's posted on the internet in several places, by telling us that Pelley's Weekly is one of the, um, the more extreme right-wing publications of the time. And I guess that's how they're dismissing this as a as a basically a conspiracy theory. Pelly's Weekly of October 14th said, Now that this sterling American patriot has made the passing, it can be revealed that not long after his public utterance against the encroaching powers of Judah, and of course they, that they are misled into believing that the Jews are actually Judah when they're not, right? It became known among his intimates that he suffered two attacks against his life. The first attack came in the form of two revolver shots fired at him from ambush as he was alighting from a cab in front of one of the Capitol hotels. Fortunately, both shots missed him, the bullets burying themselves in the structure of the cab. He became violently ill after partaking of food at a political banquet at Washington. His life was only saved from what was subsequently announced as a poisoning by the presence of a physician friend at the banquet who at once procured a stomach pump and subjected the congressman to emergency treatment. The, um, the information on the attacks against McFadden and his poisoning and his subsequent death, I really have no original sources for, except for copies and, and embellishments upon copies of those same quotes that I just read. I don't find anything and anywhere which, um, which is from an original document, and, and I think that's sad, and, and it's a sad reflection on the state of the Internet because... Um, it, it seems that many things that aren't politically expedient for, for the paradigm which we currently live in uh, just aren't documented. That they're just it, it's lost down the memory hole. That there is a um, an obituary. I'm going to read the obituary on Lewis McFadden, and, and this is so that we see how he actually died because those quotes didn't. That this is from a local Pennsylvania genealogy site which reproduces obituaries from the area in which McFadden came from, which is um, northeastern Pennsylvania along the New York border, that this is actually from um, a genealogy site which is only concerned with a couple of counties in northeastern Pennsylvania. Lewis McFadden, veteran congressman, buried today, was a colorful figure in Congress, Chairman of the Banking Committee, 12 years, Lewis T. McFadden, for many years an outspoken representative in Congress, has returned in death to Canton, 
where he began his career as a poor boy and worked himself up to a position of wealth and influence. A hearse from New York City brought the body to Canton Friday, where it will lie in state in the family home until the funeral this afternoon. And an automobile accompanying the hearse were Mrs. McFadden and her son Theodore, who had gone with him last Wednesday when he went to a New York City hospital. There he died Thursday after a heart attack. So he actually had the heart attack after being in the hospital for at least 24 hours. Known by many as the unyielding foe of the international bankers, for 20 years, Mr. McFadden, author of the McFadden Banking Act, represented the 15th, or Horseshoe District, of Pennsylvania in Congress. He was chairman of the powerful House Banking and Currency Committee for 12 years, where he was a leader of the Pennsylvania delegation in Congress until he split with President Hoover. After his attacks on Hoover, he was stripped of his patronage privileges and read out of the Republican Party. Upon winning re-election, however, he was later taken back into the fold and was one of the first to attack the New Deal in Congress. In the meantime, two new counties, Columbia and Montour, had been added to the district. In 1934, he was defeated for re-election. It seems like there was some gerrymandering to get him out of office, right? Mr. McFadden sought to make a political comeback this autumn, but was defeated at the primaries for the Republican nomination for the seat in Congress he had held for so long. Mr. McFadden, however, won the Prohibition Party nomination, but did not make an active campaign. Funeral services will be held this afternoon at his home in Canton. The Reverend William J. Cartmel, pastor of the Canton Presbyterian Church, of which McFadden was a member, will officiate. And that's his, his obituary from a local news source, and that came from a website called Tri-Counties Genealogy and History by Joyce M. Tice. Hmm. It, it's, a, it's from the obituary center section for Bradford County, Pennsylvania. So it seems real patriots get poisoned. They don't get to run a, a third-party presidential campaign. Well, well, there's a book, and this is from readperiodicals.com, and, and this book is evidently not, um, not, not published by, by any sort of publishing house. It's only um, copies of it, – it was only circulated in copies of private manuscripts, right? And I'm going to quote from readperiodicals.com, and, and once I, I make my, my, my quotes, you'll understand the citations. And his new book. The Lindbergh Baby Kidnap Conspiracy, that's the title of it, Professor Alan Marius, who taught for 35 years at the City University of New York, believes that James P. Warburg, the son of Paul Warburg, the chairman, the first Federal Reserve Board chairman, right, was behind the kidnapping. A prominent banker and member of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's brain trust, Warburg is perhaps best remembered for telling a Senate subcommittee in 1950 that we would have world government by conquest or consent. He was the son of Federal Reserve architect Paul Warburg. Maris's book, or, or I'm sorry, Marlis's book, currently available only from the McNally Jackson Bookstore in New York City, is clearly a self-published manuscript. This man's name is Professor Alan Marlis. There's a typo in the document where his name is first mentioned. 
but it demonstrates extensive research. Marlis describes a context of sudden deaths for enemies of the FDR Federal Reserve crowd, and he lists some of those deaths, right? The first was Walter Liggett, a speechwriter for Charles Lindbergh Sr., who was murdered in 1935, a case which was never solved. The second one was in 1936. Louisiana politician Huey Long, possibly FDR's biggest re-election threat, was assassinated, an incident which is still controversial. Third is Louis McFadden, the Fed chief's the, the Fed, Federal Reserve's chief congressional critic who survived two attempts on his life before dying suddenly also in 1936. Now, 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 now um, he's, McFadden's not the topic of this book. He's only one of the people mentioned. So, so this City University of New York professor of 35 years believed that James T. Warburg was behind the kidnapping of the, of the Lindbergh baby, and also believed that, um, that the people behind the, the pro-Federal Reserve faction of, of, of Franklin Roosevelt's administration were responsible for the deaths of Huey Long, Walter Liggett, and Louis McFadden. And it doesn't end there. And I'm going to go on because we have a couple of minutes left to this program. After triggering the Great Depression, and, and this is the words of, the, of this City University of New York professor, right? After triggering the Great Depression, establishment bankers wanted Roosevelt elected as president in 1932 to spawn an era of government borrowing, erosion of the Constitution, and moves toward world government. Lindbergh's father-in-law, Dwight Morrow, now Republican senator for New Jersey, was touted as a possible presidential candidate. In October 1931, Morrow, 58 years old and fit, attended a charity dinner hosted by Lehman Brothers, heavy backers of FDR. Herbert Lehman was Roosevelt's lieutenant governor in New York and signed the papers extraditing Hauptmann, the man who got blamed for the Lindbergh kidnapping, to New Jersey. After the dinner, Morrow returned home and died that night. Thus vanished the remaining hope for the Republicans whom newspapers blamed for the Depression. So, so it seems that this, that this Charles Lindbergh's father-in-law, Dwight Morrow, was a serious challenger to Roosevelt's re-election, and he was snuffed out at a banquet given by the Lehman Brothers, New York Bank Jews. Like the question, why would he attend a Lehman Brothers banquet? Well, well, that's a good question, too. But, I mean, if you're a politician, you're a whore, right? In 1932, one man still posed a threat to FDR's election, Charles Lindbergh. Lindy was too young constitutionally for, to run for president. He wasn't 35 yet. But his popularity was so universal that his active presence alone might have kept Republican hopes alive. But five months after Morrow's sudden death, Morrow was his father-in-law, right? Lindbergh's baby was murdered, effectively removing the grieving father from the political scene. Some of the Marlis, some of the links Marlis draws to James Warburg. And there are, I'm, I'm not going to get into it. We don't have time. Talk show is going to cut us off after two hours. But Marlis um, makes a, 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 
some of the evidence is circumstantial. Some of it's a little more than circumstantial. But, but he makes a case for connecting James Warburg to the murders of all those people and to the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. So, so Lewis McFadden was apparently killed by the banking establishment and the Jews whom he, was, he, he had spent so many years in Congress trying to awake the American people up to the menace of, and, and it never worked. The American people, the Jewish media prevailed, and the American people stayed in their slumber. And here we are today. And thank you for joining us. Um, I, I believe this program's about to end. Talk show's been enforcing the two-hour two program time, right? So I'm going to cut this here. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Next Saturday's program will be announced at Christa during the week. Good night. Thank you. Praise Yahweh.